Well, it's, uh, it's good to be here this morning. I was gone last week uh, preaching at, at Selwood Baptist Church uh, while Pastor Jeff was on vacation, so that was, it was great to see uh, the saints there at Selwood, and um, always nice to worship with them, but obviously it's, it's a great delight to be back here and to, to be in the pulpit with you and to open God's Word. We are, uh, we're jumping back in for the summer. You know, we spent a few weeks uh, doing a, a mini-series of sorts on um, evangelism and hospitality, and, and last week uh, Chris gave us a message on uh, the nature of reconciliation and forgiveness within the context of the local church and beyond. And this morning we're jumping back into our, uh, our expositional series looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 20 uh, as we have a kind of a, a turn here yet again. Um, as Jesus is now uh, addressing some of the concerns of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, we're going to look at these two sections together, and then for the next several weeks through the fall, we're just going to continue to walk through uh, Matthew's gospel and, and, and take God's word to us as it, as it comes. So let me start by reading the text to us, and then we'll unpack it. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard the saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat what is with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's word for us this morning. Father, we do ask for your help this morning as we look to your word. Father, we pray that we would be fed and nourished, confronted, challenged, built up, and encouraged, that our hearts would find their final resting place in the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text breaks up nicely for us here in three different parts. 
Uh, the first is really just verses 1 to 2, verses 1 to 3 or so. The second will be verses 4 to 9. And then the next, uh, verses 10 to 20. So in, in, in verses 1 to 3, we get the principle that this whole text is going to address. In verses 4 through 9, we get a specific example of how we try to deal with this principle. And then finally, in verses 10 to 20, Jesus is going to give us the true answer. So point one is called spiritual uncleanness. Point one, spiritual uncleanness. So look again at verse two with me. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. What's going on here? Well, the Pharisees here are challenging uh, Jesus and his disciples because uh, they've seen that the disciples don't wash their hands when they eat. Now, I realize that, it's, that this may be a, a cardinal sin in many families as well. Um, but why would the Pharisees care so much that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate? Why would they care so much? Why is that such a big deal? Uh, the Pharisees are upset because that they think the disciples are disregarding the ceremonial washings. The Pharisees are upset because they think that Jesus' disciples are just disregarding the ceremonial washings that are... ...ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, and especially the clean laws. The Pharisees are very strict about dealing with the clean laws that we find in places like Exodus, Leviticus, and, and the book of Numbers. And that's where we get these ceremonial clean laws. And I, I realize... That to modern people, uh, these, these clean laws can seem unnecessary and even confusing at times. You know, why, why did God lay out these sort of principles in his word? What's the need for these cleansings? Well, let me just kind of summarize very briefly what some of these clean laws were in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Um, you could... Essentially, you, you couldn't go into the tabernacle or temple um, if you'd come in contact with, with dirt, death, or decay. With the, the, the three Ds. With dearth, dearth. <laughs> with dirt, death, or decay. Uh, for example, um, dirt. The priests, they had, to, they had to clean themselves. They had to physically clean themselves in their clothes before they could enter into the tabernacle. Or death. Um, you know that if, if you've been near a, a dead body, an animal, or even a human, you, you couldn't enter the tabernacle, it says in God's word, for five days. Or decay, or disease, and if you had some kind of skin disease, or you had some kind of flow of blood, it says that you couldn't enter into the tabernacle and worship. And here's another one that's, that's confusing often to most people, and is often the source of... Um, Old Testament ceremonial mockery, but you couldn't eat shellfish. Now, why would that be? Well, we live in an era of refrigeration and grocery stores and so on, but without refrigeration, uh, shellfish decays and goes bad very, very quickly. So it was an issue of, of decay, of death, of disease, of dirtiness, and so on. And we know this even about shellfish now. You go to a fish market and they, they pack on the ice real thick and they ask you like three times, like, you're going straight home, right? And you're like, sure, whatever. I'll eat it a couple days old. But in thinking about this, 
And thinking through the principle that's at work here, um, one commentator, uh, Dale Bruner, said it like this. He said that worshipers relate to dirt, death, and disease like doctors do. In other words, the point that he's making is that in and under Old Testament ceremonial law, we had to scrub up to go to God. We had to scrub up first before going to God. That there was even a, a hint of, of death, dirt, or disease. It had to be scrubbed off. And this makes sense. Bruner helped me understand this by understanding the nature of a, of a, of a surgeon. Right? All, all dirt, all disease, all sickness is, is wiped clean before going in and doing the act of surgery. It's a very clean, sterile kind of environment. And in a sense, what's happening here in these Old Testament ceremonial laws is that the worshiper of God must scrub himself like that to be in the presence of God. The clean laws were there to teach us something that's really, really important. And that is this. Sin does to the soul the same thing that dirt, death, and decay does to the body. Sin does to the soul the same thing that dirt, death, and decay do to the body. What does this look like on the ground? Uh, Infection and decay in the body, it, it, it pulls the body apart from itself. It, 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 it makes the body at odds with itself. And in a sense, it, it disintegrates the body, as it were. And sin has the exact same effects in our life. It has a disintegrating effect in our life. It pulls us apart. It isolates us from other people. It isolates us from the community around us. It isolates us from the relationships around us. It isolates us and alienates us from God. In a sense, the point that Jesus and and God is making through these ceremonial laws is that the soul, the soul has been deeply and internally corrupted by sin itself. It has a decaying, death-giving, dirtying effect to the soul. And we see this. We see the ways that sin has alienated ourselves. We can even look inside ourselves and see that we are not the way that we should be from the inside out. There's a sense in which our mind and our body and our heart aren't always aligned. We want to feel things that we don't feel and we feel things that we don't want to feel. There's an alienation. There's a disintegration within us. Why do wars exist? Wars exist because of sin, because of something that's coming from the inside of people. It's alienating us. It's disintegrating us from each other and the world around us. And I realize that to some of us here that this notion that the problem is sin, the problem is inward corruption, sounds old-fashioned. It potentially even sounds unhelpful and even just oversimplistic. Oversimplistic to say that the problems of the world, the problems in the world exist and reside within my own human heart. We live in an age that says you need to determine what is right and wrong for you. And, and this whole idea of sin or inward corruption is a chain. It's an, it's an opiate to control the masses. That's the air we breathe in this culture but it's everywhere 
We see the effects of the inward corruption everywhere. You know, one example from from literature, you remember in um, yeah, in Crime and Punishment, how the main character there, Russ Kolnikov, he he he's this he's this person that thinks that um, that morality and right and wrong are, are constructs of his own mind, that that man makes his own destiny. And so on. And he comes across early in this book this, this bitter, old, wealthy woman who's this nasty woman. And he plots to murder her and to, and to, and to rob her. Right? And he, and he does so. But the whole rest of the book is about how he's just plagued. How he's been corrupted from the inside out. How it eventually destroys him. This act that he's committed, this man who finds himself and thinks someone to be a self-made man who, who determines right and wrong for himself, this act that he's committed corrupts him and, 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 and drives him to places of despair. Okay, murder. That's a little hyperbolic, maybe you say. Um, but let's think about this. Let's think about closer to home, the inward corruption that we all experience. The inward disintegration that we all experience. Why are some of us so worried what other people think about us that we have this social anxiety when we get around other people? Why are some of us so worried about how we look that it drives us to eating disorders? Why are so many of us bitter at others for the way that our life is going or the, or, the, or the place that our life has ended up at? Why are some of us in prisons of unforgiveness unable to let offenses go? Hmm. I'll tell you why. Because all of us in our own ways are washing. Washing. And oftentimes our response to the inward corruption, the inward disintegration, is to be constantly washing. Sin defiles, it defiles from the inside out. Raskolnikov says, it's only wrong if it's wrong to you, and many people live that way. But there is an inescapable, inescapable voice of defilement within every single one of us that says we're not good enough, that we haven't succeeded, and we aren't the way that we should be. So that's point one. The spiritual uncleanness that all of us experience. But point two, Jesus gives us a very practical example of the ways in which we are constantly washing. So let's build on that idea. Look at what he does here. They come to him with this issue of uncleanness. And they they accuse his disciples of not following the ceremonial law. So what does he do in response? What does Jesus do in response to the accusation that his disciples don't follow the ceremonial law of, of cleanness? Well, he puts it back to them and he exposes them. Okay, but first, let me show you something that I left out of the first point intentionally because I wanted to highlight it here because it's really making the point much clearer. Okay, look at part of what the Pharisees say in verse 2. They say, Why do your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders. 
That's a fascinating comment. And it's a fascinating point because it really helps us to understand this whole problem and this whole issue of washing. Look, um, what, um, what has happened here and what the, um, what the Pharisees are doing here is that they're elevating the law. They're elaborating on the law. Because it was really only the, 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 the priests that had to wash themselves before they went in. And really, that was it. But what the Pharisees have done is they've created something that's called the tradition of the elders. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it quite literally is called the fence. And there's this, this teaching that's, 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 that's apart from the scriptures. And it's an interpretation of the law. And what the Pharisees have done is they've elevated the law to such a degree that they, they, they conclude if it was right for the priests to wash themselves before a ceremonial cleansing, then it's right for us to wash ourselves all the time. And anyone that doesn't wash themselves all the time before eating or before whatever it was is unclean. Doesn't take God seriously. Isn't really concerned with his spiritual life. They elevate it and they elaborate it to a place that it was never intended to be. So what does Jesus do? He flat out tells them. He says, look, you raise certain aspects of the law, but you've clearly neglected others. And he gives this example of, of how they're supposed to honor their parents and care for their parents. And what, what's going on here is there was, there was, there was within the tradition of, of the elders, there was a way to say that, that all of my resources are given to God. And in, in, in Mark uses a word, and in the, in the Greek uses a word called korban. That everything that I have is devoted to God. Therefore, the Pharisees reasoned, I am not under obligation to care for my parents financially. Because everything that I have has been given to God. Why should I be constrained with giving something to my parents if everything I have has already been devoted to a higher purpose and a higher principle? And Jesus flat out rebukes them. He says, you're exactly what Isaiah was talking about. You have made void the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You've made void the word of God for the sake of your tradition. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. They teach as doctrines the commandments of men. The things that men command you've raised to an elevated status. You've elaborated to such a degree that you consider it above the word of God itself. And you find your washing, you find your identity in that. I won't stay here too long because we talk about it all the time. But we all have a tendency to elevate aspects of the law of God to bash other people and to justify ourselves. We all do it. We all have a tendency to just elevate in certain aspects of the law of God and we use it to bash and put down other people in order that we might justify ourselves. And one of the ways that we, we talk about it all the time here, because they're, they're easy labels to kind of put some framework in your mind is we, we think liberal and conservative. Okay? And just by a general rule of thumb, by a general principle, you know, the, the liberals tend to care more for social justice, care for the widow, care for the orphan, care for the poor. And they look down on the conservative because they don't do that. Well, the conservative looks down on the liberal because they care about family values and sexual chastity. 
And they raise those values to the point where they can now look down and bash the other person. And we all do it. And the way we do it, and the reason that we do it, is so that we can justify ourselves. We can try to cleanse ourselves. We can try to wash ourselves by comparing ourselves to other people. We all do it. Look, you've all been in a place. I've been in a place. When we've been in a disagreement, in a controversy with another person, in an argument, and we, we elevate something that they did in their minds, and we have a tendency to diminish the things that we did. We all do it. We have a tendency to elevate what this other person has done, how they've offended me, how they've acted, and the things that are accused of, of, of us. We have just a, a, a very quick tendency to say, well, you don't understand. It was circumstantial. This was going on in my life. You're just an insensitive jerk. We do it all the time. We elevate certain things in order to bash people and justify ourselves. And it's the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. They were elevating certain aspects of the law that they could control, and they were diminishing others, and they were accusing other people so that they could justify themselves. I, you know, my, my, my wife and I were in a, a heated disagreement the other day. Um, and it was because... Uh, I was out running errands in the evening, late, late, late afternoon and evening, and, and, I, and I made a stop uh, for myself, and um, I violated expectations. But then I was angry and frustrated because my wife, who's massively pregnant, wasn't grateful for the fact that I was out taking care of things for her and the family. And there's just this subtle, very quick tendency to elevate one thing and diminish another. Yeah, I know I stopped, but don't you see everything that I've been doing all day for you? And then vice versa, you know, but you said, you said you were gonna do X, Y, and Z, and you didn't. What difference does it make that you think that you can justify yourself just because you were nice to me today, then you can therefore just go do whatever you want? And it just goes, it ratchets itself up. Because it's a matter of the human heart. The human heart's knee-jerk reaction is always self-justification. The knee-jerk reaction of the human heart is always self-justification. It's always our own means and ways of washing, of cleansing, of justifying ourselves. We do it when it comes to issues of forgiveness. When challenged by someone to forgive, when challenged by someone to be at peace and reconcile, we always say, and legitimately can say to some degree, you don't understand. You don't know what I've been through. And every single one of us could say that, and it would be true. We don't. You don't know what I've been through, you've not felt what I've felt, and I've not felt what you've, been, what you've gone through and felt what you've felt. Because the knee-jerk reaction of the human heart, though, is to rise up in self-protection, self-justification, to elevate things, to elaborate on things, to give ourselves a pass and not other people. Because we're constantly trying to deal with that inward corruption. That thing in us that shows us that we're not the way that we should be. We sing about it all the time. We are not what we should be. We are not what we should be. 
So that's point two. So point one was that Jesus shows us spiritual uncleanness that we all experience. That what, what dirt, death and decay do to the body, sin does to the soul. And then we looked at an example now of how uh, Jesus shows us a very practical way in which we elevate certain aspects of the law. We raise things in ourselves in order to justify ourselves. And we put others down as a result and as a means. You know, we're the church that has it all figured out. We're the church that's got, you know, the corner on the right doctrine and so on. As a way of justifying ourselves, as a way of bolstering ourselves, of making us feel good about ourselves. That's not to say that right doctrine and thinking well is not important. It's extremely important. But it's not intended to ever be used as a way to justify ourselves. As a way to make ourselves feel better because we've got it more figured out than the other guy. Denominations and denominations and churches have split and churches have split over this issue alone. Of, of, of feeling superior to other people. Relationships have been broken. Father to son have been broken. Brother to brother have been broken. Because we hold so tightly onto our own self-justification. We can't let go of it. We're trapped in the prison of our own self-justification. And it alienates us. What in the world are we going to do? What in the world are we going to do? Point three the answer. Look at what Jesus says here. He just completely turns everything on its head. Verses 10 to 11, he says, And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. He says it again, verse 17 to 20. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes its stomach and is expelled? Pretty graphic, huh? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Man, that's a verse that I wish I knew as a kid. I wish I would have put Matthew 15, 20, like on the kitchen table and been like, Mom, to eat with unwashed hands never defiled anyone. But no one understands this. The world simply does not understand this. Let me, let me, um, let me by way of example, um, understanding that the problem with the world the problem with the world around us resides within the human heart. Because we try so many other solutions to fix ourselves, to fix the world around us. Take, for example, uh, the rampant problem of racism. Okay? Racism is a rampant problem, not just in this country, but around the world. People taking what is, what, 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 what is, what is unique about themselves and elevating it to a place of superiority. Okay? And we've... As a, as, a, as a society have said that the answer is more education. The, the answer is to just make people aware of the effects of these kinds of social ills. You know, you know, the, the answer is, 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 is forced integration. And I'm not necessarily against any of those things. I'm not, I'm not bemoaning any of those things. I'm not bemoaning integration or education or anything of the like. I'm just trying to highlight the point that it hasn't made it better. Because the problem is one that resides in the human heart. 
The problem of feeling superior to somebody else, elevating something, and then bashing other people to justify ourselves is something that's a universal human problem. And it's a condition and it's a matter of the heart. And Jesus Christ gets at something that the world can never get at. The world can never answer the problem of these social ills. Because they will always, at bottom, at core, be matters of the heart. And the world can't control your heart. Only God, coming from the outside in, can change your heart and control your heart. That's why the church has to constantly be at the front on the fore of these kinds of issues, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, to repent and be reconciled to God, to receive the, 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 the gift of new birth, of regeneration, to be born again, born to live a life that's, 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 that's glorifying to God and a blessing to the world around you. For the ancient world, the Greeks and the Romans, the, the great human struggle was between the mind and the passions, right? They thought that, 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 that if you wanted to achieve uh, strength and courage and self-control, uh, you had to learn to, to, to eliminate, subliminate emotions that dictate the reason. They thought it was just a, 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 an intense mental process of sort of suppressing your emotions and feeling nothing. That was the path towards self-actualization and true courage and true self-control and wisdom and strength. But for modern people, it's the opposite, ironically. So the, the, the ancient secular world was suppress all your feelings and rely completely on the mind. The modern secular mindset is almost, almost the reverse. It's almost the exact opposite. It's our deepest feelings are who we really are. Our deepest feelings are who we really are. And to suppress them or to deny them is wrong. It's a violation of human rights. It's a violation of what it means to be human to deny any feeling that you have about yourself. And we've created laws. We've created structures. We've created systems that just rampantly encourage people to do what you feel. And we're in the process of making it a criminal crime to prevent someone from doing just what they feel. That's somewhat of a rabbit trail. But what I want to show us as we come kind of close to a close is that this problem, as we've said, is for Christians too. Jesus, throughout the gospel, condemns people who praise God and worship, yet in their hearts, they are far from me. Jesus startles his listeners oftentimes when he says things like, out of the heart, out of the heart. That compliance with the law and religion's observance mean nothing if the heart's motives and purposes are not set on God rather than on human approval or self-congratulation. We can only please God and be free if he is the object of our heart's greatest love the heart my friends and what Jesus is getting at here when he says that what comes out of his mouth when he says that whatever in verse 18 proceeds from the mouth is from the heart when he talks about heart he's talking about our most basic orientation He's talking about our, our, our deepest commitments. What we 
hope in and trust in and treasure and love the most. We could even say it sort of artistically, the seat of our heart is what captures our imagination. What captures our imagination, what truly engages us, what really gets us excited, what gets us going, what gets our affections moving, what gets our delights stirring, what gets our loves moving. That's the heart. And every heart has some kind of inclination. It's directed towards something. So in a sense, we could say that the direction of the heart then controls everything. The orientation of the heart controls everything. Our thinking, our feeling, our decisions, our actions. So what does this mean then for us? We make this very practical for us. It means that as Christians, we need to learn to not just repent of our actions, but to repent of our motives. We need to learn to not just repent of our actions, but to repent of our motives. Not just, Lord, forgive me that I did that. But help me understand the ways in which I'm still washing. I'm still self-justifying. Why do I act that way in those kinds of social settings? What am I holding on to? What is the orientation of my heart that wants that so bad? What drives me to not tell the truth? Am I afraid of a lack of approval from people? Am I afraid of what they'll actually think about me? Have I elevated what other people think about me to a degree that it actually controls me? Because if my heart was resting on you and you alone, it wouldn't matter what other people think of me because the, what, what you think of me is that you, you've loved me as the apple of your eye. And to the degree that has controlled my human heart, that will help me and keep me from bearing false witness. The gospel of grace is not just something whereby we enter the kingdom of God. The gospel of grace is how we proceed and sanctify and become more like God in Jesus Christ. Because the gospel of grace grabs our heart and radically reorients it to find its hope, its security, its satisfaction and control in God and God alone. And when you have that, and you have it by, 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 by free and sheer grace because of God's gift to you, then it frees you to be a truly holy person. I want to be like that. How I long to be that. How I long to, 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 to lay hold of this gospel of grace. That my identity, my hope, my strength, everything that I am would be found in the gospel. Found in Jesus Christ. Because then the things that happen in this world, the things that happen in my relationships, when my wife and I get into some kind of heated discussion, I can say, you're right, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It absolutely doesn't matter. Because I have the hope and the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. You know, my friends, um, I was reading this book last week and I shared this with the elders at the elder meeting this week. And I'm reading, uh, and it's by Leslie Newbegin, who was a missiologist, which just means that he, he just thought about missions and how to get the gospel into a culture. And he made the point in this book that what happens when, when is, that, is that the gospel comes into a culture, okay, and it, and it, and it, and it meets um, that, the, the cultural idolatry of, of, of its generation, and it, and, it, and it speaks the gospel into it. So what do I mean by that? So the gospel comes to Corinth, right? And, you know, there's, there's, there's rampant uh, hypersexuality and so on. And, and, and Paul confronts that, and he confronts that by the means of the gospel. And then, you know, then the church is formed. 
and a church is formed and people that have been, that have been brought out of darkness and, and, have, and have become Christians and, and so on and so forth. But this is the insight, okay? The insight that Newbegin had is that the tendency of the church then is to just go back to the culture. To just go back to the culture. And usually in one of two ways. Either in a way that just becomes kind of hyper-relevant and, and kind of watered down to such a degree that, you know, it's just kind of like... It's like lukewarm Christianity, and it's like lukewarm culture, and it really has no benefit for either. It just become, tried to become too relevant. Or the tendency of the church is to just become isolated, to disengage, to just pull back. But Newbegin's insight is that for the church to actually be effective to reach the culture, it has to go back to the gospel first. And it has to constantly be going back to the gospel. Because the only thing that the church that you and I have to actually offer the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's so profound about this point is that what the world needs and what we need sitting in these chairs here is the exact same thing. We need to rest in the gospel of grace offered to us freely by Jesus Christ. And that is what's going to make us to be effective missionaries to this lost and dying generation. Not to try to necessarily become you know, too, too relevant and, and, and overthinking all this, but to be just enamored and saturated with the love of God in Jesus Christ. The answer is the same thing for both. So how do we get that today? As we head towards a close. How do we get that today? What is the answer that's in this text? Well, what is, I think, obvious in Matthew's gospel, um, Mark comes out and just flat out says it in his parallel account. Listen to this. Mark says in Mark 7... um, 19, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Mark adds that last phrase. Thus he declares all foods clean. Matthew, I think, assumes it. Mark just flat out says it. Thus he declares all foods to be clean. So how in the world can Jesus do that? Is, is, is Jesus somehow, you know, relaxing, you know, the Old Testament prescription or something? Is he sort of saying, okay, 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 yep, you Pharisees, you're just going to take it too seriously. Okay, it's, it's fine. All foods are clean. Don't worry about it. No. No, he doesn't. He tells us a couple chapters back in chapter 5. He says, I have not come to abolish but to fulfill them. He says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So what in the world is Jesus doing here when he declares all foods to be clean? Should we lighten the load? Should we just take it easy? Jesus doesn't think that we take it too seriously in a sense the message of Matthew's gospel and throughout is he says we don't take it serious enough he hasn't come to abolish it but he in himself has come to fulfill it there's a remarkable place in um, Zechariah chapter 3 where Zechariah has a vision and he has a vision uh, about Joshua the high priest and he's standing before the angel of the Lord In this vision, Joshua the high priest, it says that he's clothed with filthy garments. He's clothed with filthy garments. And 
in the in the Hebrew, it's 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 quite a bit more explicit than just clothed in filthy garments. It's you know it's it's clothed in in excrement. It's 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 clothed in 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 the most vile of, of substances. And then he says, though, at the end of this vision in Zechariah chapter three, it says that the Lord of Hosts says to him, "I will remove the iniquity in a single day. In one day, in one single sweeping act, he says, "I will remove the iniquity." Just to go back and think through the image that we had a moment ago of the ceremonial washings. You know, it was only. As you know, once a year, that the high priest would go into <clears throat> excuse me, the Holy of Holies, and that was the Day of Atonement, right? And on the Day of Atonement, the great, the, not the great high priest, the high priest, um, would wash multiple times. And, and, and on the night before the Day of Atonement, he would, he would stay up all night, and he would actually be attended to by other priests and so on, and they would pray and they would prepare themselves to go in and to enter into the, the Holy of Holies. And the first thing he would do is he would, he would pray for himself and he would wash and he would cleanse his clothes and he would change his garments. And then the next thing he would do is that he would pray for the, the priests that had been up with him all night, and then he would pray again and he would wash his garments and change them again. And then he would, and then he would pray for the people and after he was through that, he would, he would wash again and, and, and change his linens yet again, understanding the nature of defilement and decay and death that sin has brought. And, and then what he would do is he would take two goats, and one he would sacrifice for the, for the sin of the people, and on the other, they, he would lay his hands, and he would put the sin of the people on the goat and send the goat outside the camp. It was a scapegoat. And Zechariah has the vision that sees through the whole thing. Seeing that this, these ceremonial acts actually can't cleanse the conscience before God. That Joshua's clothes are still filthy with excrement. But the promise given to him is that in one day, in one fail swoop, they will be made clean. The iniquity of the land will be wiped away and washed away. Because when the true great high priest came, he stayed up all night, but he was alone. His friends didn't accompany him. His friends didn't wait with him. And the true high priest didn't have white garments, but the true high priest was beaten and he was crucified naked. And it wasn't inside the camp, but it was on the hill of the skull. It was on that hill of death, Golgotha, where the true high priest suffered and took the sin of the people naked outside the camp. And then when the truth and the reality of that grabs our hearts and we see that it's all been wiped away in a single day, in a single act, in a single moment, then you can stop all your washing, all your self-justification, all your posturing, and see that everything that you've ever wanted, everything you've ever needed, is freely given to you 
by this great high priest who suffered, bled, and died for you and justified you before God. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the miraculous, over-the-top, extravagant grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Our hearts are bent, our eyes are dim. Our finest works are stained with sin. Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Drive our dark away till your glory fills our eyes. Bind us to your cross where we find life. Help us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Transition now to partake of uh, the Lord's table, communion together. Um, if you have... Uh, if you're a Christian, and by that we mean you've repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and, and you've made that faith public through the waters of baptism, then we invite you to partake with us. If you're not a Christian, then we would encourage you to not come forward and take the elements, but instead consider uh, what's been uh, preached this morning and consider uh, what it would mean to give your life to Jesus Christ. You can come up row by row starting in the back and take the elements to your seat, and we will partake corporately.